This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Nehemiah. With this as the focus, if you would open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 12, and as you make your way to the 12th chapter of Nehemiah, I just want to take a moment to remind you that Nehemiah was the man that the Lord raised up to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem after uh, the Israelites were set free from their Babylonian captivity. And while it's true that this wall ended up providing the people living in Jerusalem with an added measure of protection. Well, it's also true that this wall enabled them to worship the Lord there at the temple without the constant concern about the uh, sneak attacks of the enemy. And in this way, Nehemiah, well, he not only brought political revival to the land of Israel, but he also established this security system that allowed the people to spend more time serving the Lord there at the temple. And it's here in our text tonight where we learn more about the way in which the leadership decisions of Nehemiah enabled the religious leaders of Israel to then turn around and bless the people of God there on Temple Mount as they got back to the business of serving the Lord. In similar fashion, uh, the Lord Jesus has also established spiritual boundaries for the church age, a spiritual wall of sorts, uh, so that those who trust in him can be blessed by the religious leaders that he raises up. And as we make our way through the text before us tonight, well, it's my hope that we might become those believers who are enjoying the blessings that the Lord pours out upon those who will serve our Savior within the doctrinal boundaries of biblical truth. Well, with this as the focus, if you would, let's turn in our Bibles to uh, the 12th chapter of Nehemiah. I want to focus your attention here on uh, at Nehemiah chapter 12. Let's begin reading there at verse 1. Here we learn that these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, Saraiah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Maluk, Hattush, Shechaniah, Rehum, Meramoth, Ido, uh, Genethoi, Abijah, uh, Majamin, uh, Madia, Bilga, Shemaiah, Jorab, Jediah, Salu, Amuk, Hilkiah, and Jediah. These were the heads of the priests and their brethren in the days of Yeshua. Now, here in the beginning of this chapter, we find this list of leaders who represented 22 divisions or 22 courses of priests, which had been appointed at the time when Zerubbabel led the exiled Israelites from Babylon and back to the land of promise. And while it's true that King David had originally divided the priests into 24 divisions, Nehemiah's list only includes 22 priestly leaders. Now, in order to understand why there were only 22 priestly leaders, uh, it'll help you to know, first of all, that only four of the original 24 priestly families actually returned to the Holy Land. So there were 24 priestly families, 24 courses of priests who were in charge of maintaining the service of the Lord there at the temple, you know, 24-7, and and yet only four of the original 24 families actually went back to the Holy Land the, the, the rest of them remained uh, in, in Babylon. I'll remind you, it was actually back in Nehemiah chapter 7. There we learn that the only priestly families that actually returned to Israel were the sons of Jediah, Immer, Pasher, and Haram. And from these four families, 22 leaders were then chosen to maintain the full-time ministry that was occurring there at the temple. 
Now from this, we can see then that 20 of the 24 priestly families weren't willing to leave Babylon. And they didn't want to go back to Israel and, and pick up their service of the Lord. And, and if I had to guess why, well, it's probably because they had come to love the creature comforts that they experienced there in Babylon. Given the choice to stay in Babylon and be comfortable or travel to the unpopulated, unprotected wastelands of Israel, well, 83% of them decided that life was just better in Babylon. And so they stayed. And, and, and it's sad to say that there are many Christians who follow in their footsteps. And just to be clear, I'm referring to the born-again believers who have been set free from the bondage of Babylon and yet choose to remain. By faith in Jesus Christ, we are set free from the bondage of Babylon, and yet so many born-again believers, after having been set free from Babylon, choose to remain. Rather than moving forward on the narrow path of righteousness, they remain in Babylon because they're unwilling to walk away from the sinful uh, desires that they love so much. Now, if this sounds like your struggle, I encourage you to remember the instructions that Peter presented in 1 Peter chapter 4. It's there where he declares that we should no longer live the rest of our time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness and lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these They think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. In other words, the born-again believer hasn't been called to continue just going with the flow of this fallen world. And your old friends should think that you've become a strange individual because you're no longer interested in doing the same things that you once did. I remember when I first started just kind of getting away from the whole music scene and I wasn't going to the shows anymore and For a while there, all my friends were just like, what is wrong with you? Why don't you want to go out with us anymore? They thought I was strange. But I just want to, I'd rather go to a Bible study than than the rock concert. Because I found more joy there. I I found more satisfaction there. And listen, we need to just leave Babylon behind. We need to stop thinking that we can have fun in Babylon on Saturday night and then go to church Sunday morning, everything's fine. With this as the goal, I encourage you, let's follow in the footsteps of the Israelites who left Babylon. They left Babylon so that they could go serve the Lord in the land of promise. With this as the goal, I want to consider the example of the exiled Levites who also decided to return. And and, and if you would, let's pick up our study of Nehemiah 12. We'll begin reading there at verse 8. Here Nehemiah writes, Moreover, the Levites were Jeshua, Benui, Kadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Mataniah, who led the Thanksgiving Psalms. He and his brethren, also Bakbukiah and Uni, their brethren, stood across from them in their duties. And here in these verses, we find Nehemiah's list of the Levitical leaders who returned to Israel under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And it's there in the, at the end of verse 9 where we learn that these men stood across from the priests. So as the priests were accomplishing their priestly duties, the Levites were there to support them and serve them. The Levitical leaders not only left Babylon behind, but they moved forward in faith as they assisted the priests according to their calling. In light of their example, it's important for us to realize that uh, the people of God 
are not only called to leave Babylon behind, but they're also called to serve the Lord there in the land of promise. And it's in similar fashion that the born-again believer has been called to leave Babylon behind. We've been called to stop walking in the ways of this world, but also at the same time to move forward in faith as we serve our Savior. Sometimes Christians just get it in their mind that, well, I'll stop doing these things that I used to do. But they don't start doing the things that they should be doing. So we should leave Babylon behind, and we should start serving the Lord according to uh, his calling here within our fellowship of faith. And so much like the Levites who you know, decided to move forward and provide support for the priests there in the land of promise, we too should step up and serve as we dedicate our lives to the Lord. At the same time, it's also important for us to realize that the Lord raises up leaders who, who are called to lead his people so that we have assistance in, in, this, in, in this path of growth along the way. And to uh, explain my point, let's pick up our study of Nehemiah chapter 12. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 10, because here we learn that Yeshua begot Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim begot Eliashib, Eliashib begot Joida, Joida begot Jonathan, and Jonathan begot Jadua. Now in the days of Jehoiakim, the priests, uh, the heads of the father's houses were of Sarahiah, Merahiah, uh, of Jeremiah, uh, Hananiah, of uh, Ezra, Meshulam, of Amariah, Jehonanan, uh, of uh, Meliku, Jonathan, Shebaniah, Joseph, of Haram, Adna, of Merioth, of Helkai, of Edu, Zechariah, of uh, Gineoth, Meshulam, of Abijah, Zikri, the son of Mijemin, of Moadiah, Piltai, of Bilga, Shamua, of Shemaiah, Jonathan, uh, Jehonathan, I should say, uh, of Jorib, Matani, of Jediah, Uzi, of Salai, Kalai, of Amok, Eber, of Hilkiah, Hashabiah, and of Jediah, Nathaniel. Uh, now, here in these verses, we find Nehemiah, he's actually focusing our attention on the genealogy of the high priest who had returned to Israel under the leadership of Zerubbabel. I'll remind you, it was back in verse 1 of this chapter where we learned that the high priest's name was Yeshua. And, and it might interest you to know that Yeshua is actually the Hebrew name of our Savior, Jesus. Uh, and much like the high priest, Yeshua, who helped the exiled Israelites to, to go from Babylon back to Israel. Uh, well, Jesus has also become the heavenly high priest who's helping those who trust in him so that we can not only escape the bondage of Babylon, but so that we can also be led down the narrow path of righteousness. In this sense, he's become our chief shepherd to guide us on the narrow path of his righteousness. And with this as the goal, well, we should take some time to consider how the Lord uses human leaders then to help him accomplish this godly guidance. In other words, while Jesus Christ is our chief shepherd, he also raises up sub-shepherds, uh, which we call pastors. And uh, with this as his plan, well, every Christian would do well to realize that the Lord confirms the calling of those that he raises up to lead. He not only raises up leaders, but he confirms their calling. And we find the example of this here in our text tonight uh, as we consider this genealogy of the high priest, uh, Yeshua. Uh, now listen, uh, when it came to the Aaronic priesthood, the only men who were allowed to serve as priests were the descendants of Aaron. 
If you were an Israelite who came from some other bloodline uh, other than Aaron's, well, you couldn't be a priest. You could call yourself a priest if you wanted. You could pretend like you were a priest if you like, but you weren't a priest. You had to come from the bloodline of Aaron. It was necessary for the priest to provide then proof that they were actually descendants of Aaron so that they could, could serve in this position. Not only that, but the high priest was also required to prove that he belonged to this specific lineage of Aaron, the, the, uh, the, the lineage of the high priest. And, and it's here in these verses where we find Nehemiah, he's actually presenting this proof of Yeshua's priestly position as high priest. Now from this, we can see that the Lord had a plan to provide his people with a way to confirm the, the priestly position. They could simply look at the genealogy. And if a person didn't have their genealogy, if they didn't have proof of their genealogy, they couldn't serve as priests. In this way, we, we see how the Lord enabled the people to identify those who were actually called to become their priests and those who weren't. In similar fashion, the Israelites also kept records regarding the bloodline of the Levites. And the reason why? Well, it's because the only Israelites who were allowed to serve as Levites were the descendants of Israel's son, Levi. With this as the focus, let's consider the way that the Israelites continue to keep these records after returning to the land of promise. And so let's pick up our study uh, of Nehemiah 12, beginning of verse 22. Uh, here we uh, learn, uh, Nehemiah writes that uh, it was during the reign of Darius the Persian, a record was also kept of the Levites and priests who had been heads of their father's houses in the days of Eliashib, Joiada, Johanan, and Jadua, the sons of Levi, the heads of the father's houses, until the days of Johanan, the son of Eliashib, were written in the book of the Chronicles. And the heads of the Levites were Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Yeshua, the son of Cadmiel, with their brothers across from them to praise and give thanks group alternating with group according to the command of David, the man of God. Mataniah, Bakbukiah, uh, Obadiah, Meshulam, Talman, and Akub were gatekeepers, keeping the watch at the storeroom of the gates. These lived in the, the, in the days of Joachim, uh, the son of Jeshua, and the son of Josadak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest, the scribe. Now here in these verses, we learn about the way that the children of Israel, uh, they continue to keep the genealogical records of both the priests and the Levites, and, and we find this in the book of Chronicles. Chances are Nehemiah is referring to the record, which is found in the last two verses of Second Chronicles. The same record was actually found in the beginning of Ezra's book, and it's for this reason that many scholars believe that Ezra not only wrote Ezra, but also First and Second Chronicles. But regardless of who is recording this genealogical record of the priests and the Levites, it's important for us to understand that these genealogical records were important. And the, and the reason why is because it was under the old covenant uh, where it was required for the Levites to come from the tribe of Levi. You had to come from the tribe of Levi in order to be a, a Levite. Not only that, but it was also necessary for the priest to come from the bloodline of Levi's great-grandson, Aaron, as I've already pointed out. And, and everyone else was excluded from these ministries, no matter how bad they wanted to be a priest or a Levite. You could want to be a priest, you could want to be a Levite with all your heart, and yet if you weren't from these bloodlines, it, it wasn't your calling. Now, as we consider the way that they would confirm uh, the calling of these individuals, you know, it's important to understand that we're no longer under this old covenant. 
But yet when it comes to the new covenant in Christ Jesus, it's also important for us to understand that, you know, first of all, the old covenant has become obsolete for the born-again believer. But not only that, the Lord Jesus was sent to become our heavenly high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus, having been born to the tribe of Judah, is not of the, uh, of the Aaronic priesthood. He is of the order of Melchizedek, which predates the Aaronic priesthood. With that being the case, the religious leaders of the church age aren't chosen according to a priestly genealogy. So if you're wondering if I come from you know, the Aaronic uh, you know, bloodline, the answer is no. No. But that's not required of a pastor in the church age. Because our high priest is of the order of Melchizedek, pastors of the church age are chosen then by the Holy Spirit and then empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish this calling. At the same time, though, I would also point out that uh, uh, you know, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you're automatically ready to, to be a pastor nor even called or, or gifted to be a pastor. So, so much like, you know, in, in the old covenant, you know, not every Israelite got to become a priest. Well, in the church age, not every Christian is automatically a pastor. No, pastors are specifically chosen by the Holy Spirit. In order to prove my point, I want to remind you about the instructions that Paul presented to the pastors from the churches there in Ephesus. It's actually in Acts chapter 20, it's verse 28, where Paul declares, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Here in this verse, we find Paul describing the way in which the Holy Spirit specifically chose these certain men to become overseers of the flocks that the Lord had committed into their care. And with this as their calling, Paul then instructs them to serve as shepherds of their churches. The Apostle Peter used similar language in 1 Peter chapter 5. It's there where Peter declares, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Here we see that it's the pastors who have been called to oversee, which speaks of oversight, meaning to lead the flock. That's why they're called pastors, or, or, uh, which is synonymous with the word shepherd. Pastors are to shepherd the flock. And while it's true that we've been called to lead by example as we shepherd the flock, well, it's also true that this calling, again, comes from the Holy Spirit. In other words, the leadership position of pastor isn't something that's conferred by a seminary. You can go to a seminary, you can go to all the seminaries, if you like. But that doesn't mean you're called to be a pastor. The leadership position of pastor isn't something that's bestowed, you know, by some church planting organization. There's a lot of church planting organizations out there who have it in their mind that it's their job to get, you know, get pastors sent out and, you know, that, but that's not their job. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. And while it's true that anyone can go get ordained online, the position of pastor isn't based on some certificate that people can purchase from some questionable website. Ordination is not something that someone that owns a website gets to confer on you. 
It's a calling of the Holy Spirit. That being the case, it's sad to say that the world is actually filled with so-called pastors who simply sent themselves. They, they weren't sent. They, they weren't chosen by the Holy Spirit. Nope, they just got it in their mind that they're going to go and be a pastor. And it's sad to say that this is not only happening within the mainline denominations, you know, as we you know, continue heading down the path of apostasy, but this is also happening more and more even within the Calvary Chapel movement as false teachers infiltrate our affiliation process. I remember, you know, back in the, in the late 90s, you know, I would tell someone, hey, wherever you're going, check out the Calvary Chapel, you'll get a good Bible study. And I can't say that anymore. I wish I could. But there, there are pastors in every denomination and non-denominational affiliation, you know, that they simply sent themselves according to their own desires and not because the Holy Spirit called them to pastor. It's for this reason that the Apostle Peter warned the church about these false teachers. As a matter of fact, it's in 2 Peter chapter 2 where Peter declares, there were false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction and many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. According to Peter, the church is going to be infiltrated by false teachers and listen, these wolves in sheep's clothing will introduce destructive doctrines which will lead people back to Babylon. It will lead people back to Babylon. It will lead people back into the bondage of their sin. And I, you know, I wish I could just say, hey, just check their genealogical record. But I can't. We can't just go and check the genealogical record of every pastor to make sure that they're, that they're really called to this. But that being the case, we should take a moment to ask, how can we make sure that the, the pastor we're listening to actually has been called and empowered by the Holy Spirit? Well, in order to answer this question, let's take a moment to consider the instructions that Paul presented to a pastor named Timothy. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 4. There Paul declares, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Now, as we consider these instructions, we see here uh, that there is, uh, that, you know, uh, I believe that uh, Paul here is presenting us with a few ways to test the validity of a pastor's calling. The pastor who is being led by the Holy Spirit is going to teach the sound doctrine of God's word. As a result, the people who are receiving this biblical instruction, well, they're going to receive the, the confidence. They're going to receive the correction. They're going to receive the exhortation that we all need from time to time as we walk by faith on the narrow path of righteousness. I remember talking with somebody uh, at HEB recently as I was shopping, and they, they liked my, uh, my Calvary hoodie that says, Simply Teaching God's Word Simply. Oh, I like that. You know, I, was, I said, like, where do you go to church? And, and he told me, and I was like, you know, uh, 
when they first planted that church, they sent out a little card that said, no convicting sermons. Fastest growing church in, in Central Texas. No convicting sermons. Huh. Here it says that the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, which is why Paul tells Timothy to preach the word, convince, rebuke, exhort. Sort of seems to me that convicting sermons is something that spirit-led pastors you know, produce. And so the pastor who guarantees that there won't be any convicting sermons at their church, I'm going to guess that's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Pastors who aren't being led by the Holy Spirit, they focus on fables, or in other words, they love telling stories, entertaining stories, oftentimes about themselves, all the while avoiding tough topics that bring the conviction of sin. And in the process, they make merchandise of the people who are coming just to be entertained because they have itching ears. Knowing that the church is filled with these false teachers who are leading people back into the bondage of Babylon, we would do well to test the teachings of spiritual leaders that we listen to. In order to further grasp my point, let's consider the way that the priests and the Levites of Israel led the people into a life of purity and let this become a measure that we use as we examine the teachers that we're listening to. And with this as the focus, look with me here at our study of Nehemiah 12, beginning at verse 27. Nehemiah here declares, Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgivings and singings, with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the countryside around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophathites uh, from the house of Gilgal and from the fields of Geba and Asmaveth. Uh, for, for the singers had built themselves villages all around Jerusalem. Then the priests and Levites purified themselves and purified the people, the gates, and the wall. Now here in these verses, we find Nehemiah recounting this day when the walls, uh, the, the walls of Jerusalem were finally you know, being dedicated unto the Lord. And according to this account, you know, the Levitical singers... Uh, first gathered together from the villages that they had built around the city. And they came and began to lead the people in the praises of God. And as they did, Nehemiah tells us that the priests and the Levites, they purified themselves first. Then they purified the people, following by the purification of the gates and finally the wall. Now, just to be clear about this, this word purified found there in verse 30, it speaks of those who are cleansed from the stain of sin. And as we consider the sacrificial system of the old covenant, which was taking place there at the temple, well, we can be certain that this cleansing included the blood of calves and goats, which provided the people with the purity of a temporary atonement. It's also important to remember that those sacrifices well, they were actually placeholders that pointed the people to the perfect sacrifice of our Savior. I like the way that Paul put it in Hebrews chapter 9. There he informs his kinsmen that Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In other words, listen, those who want to serve our Savior must first be cleansed by faith in the crucifixion of Christ Jesus. And much like the Levites and the priests who encouraged the people to come and be purified through the sacrificial system of the old covenant, listen, we now have a a, a better covenant. We now have a, a new covenant. And if the old covenant provided a temporary purifying of the flesh, how much more now does the blood of the new covenant purify us so that we can serve the Lord? And with that being the case, you know, the pastor who is being led by the Holy Spirit will encourage the the people that they they shepherd to, to understand that the only way sinners can be sanctified is by faith in the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's right. Spirit-led pastors are those who insist that Jesus and Jesus alone is able to save sinners from the impurity of the flesh. Any pastor who would suggest that there's some other way, like, like if there were to be some famous pastor who were to sit on, I don't know, some TV show and say, I don't know if Jesus is the only way or not. Well, clearly that would be a pastor that you wouldn't want to go see in Houston, Texas, right? So because they don't know if Jesus is the only way for all people. If another pastor, say, somewhere in San Antonio were to say, you know, that, well, the Jews can get saved without Jesus. No. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. The Jews must trust in Jesus Christ to be saved, just like Christians must, or uh, Gentiles must trust in Jesus Christ to be saved. And yet there are these false teachers out there teaching all sorts of crazy things. But clearly they haven't been called to be pastors by the Holy Spirit. They certainly haven't been gifted to teach God's word with clarity. Spirit-led pastors are those who insist that Jesus and Jesus alone is the only way of salvation. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except by him. And not only that, but listen, spirit-led pastors are those who encourage their congregation to you know, sing the praises of the Lord with thanksgiving once we receive the purification that comes from the blood of Jesus Christ. And with this as the focus, let's consider the way that the religious leaders of Israel led the people to start praising the Lord after they were purified there at the temple. If you would look with me, picking up our study of Nehemiah 12 at verse 31, Nehemiah declares, so I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall and appointed two large thanksgiving choirs. One went to the right hand on the wall toward the refuse gate. After them went Hoshahiah uh, and half of the leaders of Judah and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, and some of the priests, sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, uh, the son of Machaiah, 
the son of Zachur, the son of Asaph, and his brethren, Shemaiah, Azarel, uh, Milalai, uh, Gilalai, Mai, Nethanel, Judah, and Hananiah the, uh, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. Ezra, the scribe, went before them. By the fountain gate in front of them, they went up, by, uh, went up the stairs of the city of David on the stairway of the wall beyond the house of David as far as the water gate eastward. The other Thanksgiving choir went the opposite way, and I was behind them with half of the people on the wall going past the tower of the ovens as far as the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, above the old gate, above the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate, and they stopped by the gate of the prison. Here in these verses, we find Nehemiah, he's appointing these two large Thanksgiving choirs One of the choirs followed Ezra as they went to the right hand on the wall toward the refuse gate, and and they continued spreading out across the wall uh, and continuing to sing the praises of the Lord until uh, the choir arrived there at the water gate and moved uh, all the way to the temple. Uh, Nehemiah then went, uh, went with the other Thanksgiving choir, which traveled around the city in the opposite direction. And they began to spread out on this new wall as they made their way also to the temple of God. And, and so just imagine, you know, uh, men of Judah, you know, uh, just covering the entire wall around Jerusalem, singing the praises of the Lord. It's incredible. As a matter of fact, look with me, uh, beginning there at Nehemiah 12, verse 40. There we learn that the two Thanksgiving choirs stood in the house of God. Likewise, I and the half of the rulers with me and the priest, Eliakim, Maasiah, Minjamin, M- Micaiah, Elanoi, uh, Zechariah, Hananiah with trumpets. Also, Maasiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehohanan, uh, Malchijah, Elam, and Ezer. The singers sang loudly with Jezrahiah, the director. Now here in these verses, we find the choirs uh, on, on both sides leading the people uh, down below in praise, uh, according to their worship leader, their director, Jezrahiah. And as we consider the way that the singers sang loudly, I should take a moment to point out that if there's ever a time to be excited about singing, it's when we're gathered together with our Christian congregation as we corporately sing the praises of the Lord. And yet some of us, you know, show up and, and we sing kind of sheepishly, if you will. You know, some just, you know, don't even sing at all, you know, because embarrassment or, or you know, they, they, they don't like the sound of their voice or whatever the, whatever the reason But if there's ever a time to sing loudly to the Lord, it's when we're here within our Christian congregation. And, you know, if you've ever seen, you know, teenage girls getting excited about their favorite song coming on the radio, that's how we should be, you know, when we sing the praises of our Savior. We should be excited to sing the praises of our Savior. Christian, listen, our worship team isn't here to perform for us. You know, as I was talking to this one uh, gentleman there at HEB the other day, the reason why he was going to that church, he, he kind of recognized the heresies happening at that church, but the music is just so good. Yeah, he's going for a Sunday concert every week. He's going to watch professional musicians perform. But that's not praise. Our worship team isn't here to perform for us. As we sit back and critique the quality of the music, well, you know, the drums were a little loud tonight. Nope. 
The worship team is here to lead us in corporate praise. That makes us the choir, amen? And so we should be. They're here to lead us so that we can become a Thanksgiving choir. I like the way that King David put it in the 100th Psalm. It's there where he declares, enter into his gates with what? Thanksgiving. Not grumbling, not complaining. We're to enter into his gates with thanksgiving. We enter into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name for the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. I love this psalm because it helps us to understand that those who want to really enter in, into the throne room of grace should do so with thanksgiving. And then, with a heart of thanksgiving, that attitude of gratitude helps us to then proceed further to the courts of Christ Jesus as we sing the songs of praise. That being the case, it's important for us to realize that our songs of praise, they ought to be focused on the Lord, not on ourselves. You know, so many modern worship songs, and I don't want to get all Dave Hunt on you or anything, but uh, so many of our modern praise songs, it really could, you could just, you know, take out what, what, what few mentions there are of the Lord and just replace it with a girl's name and it's just a love song, right? Or, or it's a, a completely narcissistic, you know, self-focus song. Our songs of praise should be focused on the Lord and his goodness as we sing praises of how magnificent he is. So many of our modern worship songs are just so focused on self rather than our Savior. And it's for this reason that we need pastors who are appointing worship leaders, leaders who know how to keep our focus on the Lord as we sing songs of praise. Sadly, some of the fastest growing churches in America have pastors who are just you know, putting even unbelievers up on stage because they're great musicians. And many of these unbelieving worship leaders are choosing secular songs in so many churches these days, they'll try to, you know, spiritualize a secular song. Why would you do that? If, you, if you're looking for a new song, I mean, you could just go back to the book of Psalms and there's a lot of great stuff there. With all this, it's important for us to realize that the Lord has called his people to worship him with songs of praise. And, and not only that, but we, he's also called us to worship him with the first fruits of our finances. And to prove my point, let's turn our attention back to Nehemiah 12. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 43, here Nehemiah declares also that day, <clears throat> they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. And at the same time, some were appointed over the rooms of the storehouse for the offerings, the first fruits and the tithes to gather in the, into them for, uh, from the fields of the cities, the portions specified by the law for the priests and Levites for Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who ministered. 
Here in these verses, we find the Israelites, they're rejoicing together as every family came to sing the praises of God. And as they did, every family also brought their tithes and offerings to the temple. And in light of this example, we should also remember that the Lord has called every Christian to become cheerful givers as we worship the Lord with the first fruits of our finances. Sadly, though, there are some pastors who have placed their congregations back under the Old Testament tithe. Many pastors continue preaching the old, the tithe of the old covenant, you know, and, and even, you know, forcing members to agree to some percentage, you know, of their, of their finances every single week so that there becomes this obligation to give. And as a result, you know, many believers, you know, who are giving at these churches are just giving out of a grudging obligation. Well, I guess I got to give my money this week. That being the case, I want to remind you of the encouragement that Paul presented in 2 Corinthians 9 where he declares, let each one give as he purposes. He doesn't doesn't point to the tithe. He says, let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Another way to put that is God loves a hilarious giver. Rather than giving as a legal obligation, we ought to give cheerfully as we rejoice in what God has provided for us. You know that every good gift comes from God? Every perfect gift that you have has come from the Lord ultimately. Why wouldn't we want to turn around and take some small amount of what he's given to us and just use it to praise him? That's really the heart of New Testament giving. It's called grace giving. That we've received all this grace from God. What is it to us to turn around and use it to worship him? Any pastor who would place you back under the law and try to convince you that you need to give more because of the law, it's not a pastor that I would follow. Neither should you. And yet at the, t- at the same time, the scriptures tell us we ought to be giving. We ought to, we ought to be worshiping the, worshiping the Lord with first fruits offerings. And so that's my encouragement to you to, to give, but give according to the grace giving described in the New Testament. Finally, it's important for us to remember that the Lord is calling his people to praise him according to the truth of his word. And with this as the goal, I want to consider the final verses of this chapter. Let's begin there at verse 45. Here we learn that the singers and the gatekeepers kept the charge of their God and the charge of the purification according to the command of David and Solomon his son. For in the days of David and Asaph of old, there were chiefs of the singers and songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. In the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, all Uh, Israel gave the portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, a portion for each day. They also consecrated holy things for the Levites, and the Levites consecrated them for the children of Aaron. Now here in these final verses, we find Nehemiah, he's helping his audience to understand that they were conducting this worship service according to the commands that God had given to David and Solomon. We find those commands... Uh, in the word of God. 
What this means then is that the leaders of Israel there during the days of Nehemiah were, con- were conducting this worship service according to the instructions that the Lord had already given to David and Solomon. And in light of their example, I believe that every spirit-led pastor here in the church age today should also lead their church services according to the instructions that we find in the Word of God. We haven't been called to you know, create you know, some new mode of, of doing church. We have enough instruction in, in the New Testament epistles to, to understand how church is supposed to, to, to run. At the same time, listen, it's, it's there in verse 46. Uh, there we learn that the songs they sang were from the Psalms. And they chose these Psalms written by David and Asaph. And while the book of Psalms includes 12 songs, you know, uh, written by a, a seer named Asaph, uh, the book of Psalm also includes at least 75 Psalms that are, have been attributed to King David, 73 actually uh, uh, by name, and then a few others that people debate about whether it was David or not. But about 75 Psalms there written by King David. And so these were the songs that they were choosing as they sang these songs of praise there at this ceremony. In the light of their example, you know, the pastors here in the church age should also make sure that the songs being sung in the church are in line with the word of God. You might not know this, but there are many Christian songs that, uh, you know, that are used today that, that have lyrics that really aren't biblical. Uh, for example, there's a band, a band called Ren Collective that wrote a song called Build Your Kingdom Here. And it's in this song where they lead believers to sing we are your church, we are the hope on the earth. Wow. The church is the hope on the earth? Listen, if the church is the hope on the earth, the world is hopeless. <laughs> you know? The church isn't the hope on the earth. Christ in us is our hope of glory. Jesus is our hope. And so we've we got to be careful with, with lyrics like this because I can kind of see where maybe you could make this make sense, but not really. Citizens also has a song called Father, You Are All We Need. And the first time I heard it, I was just kind of like, so not Jesus? Not the Holy Spirit? You know, God the Father is one person within the triune Godhead. So to say, Father, You Are All We Need is to the exclusion of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I got a real problem with that. And yet Christians sing this, you know, thank you, thank you, Father, you are all we need, without even really considering that, actually, that's a heresy that was rejected by the early church. We don't just need the Father. We need the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father didn't die for your sins. The Holy Spirit didn't die for your sins. The Son died for your sins. The Father sent the Holy Spirit to draw us. We need all three persons of the triune Godhead, not just the Father. And listen, I'm just barely scratching the surface of of all the unbiblical beliefs that, that we find in modern worship music. I don't even have time to even touch on Hillsong, let alone Elevation, Bethel, and Jesus culture. No time to cover that. I've already gone well past my time tonight. Knowing how heresy is being 
snuck into the church through music. For this reason, the Lord raises up shepherds who are able to guide their congregation to maintain biblical borders for the church according to the instructions that we find here in God's word. And so we should. Pastors ought to be providing those biblical boundaries, those border walls, if you will, to help the sheep to understand here, here's the, the doctrinal divisions between truth and error. Let's stay within the, the borders and boundaries of truth so that we can be protected from the enemy on the outside. That being the case, every Christian would do well to commit themselves to a congregation where a spirit-filled pastor is shepherding the flock according to the doctrinal boundaries that the Lord Jesus has established for his church. And in this way, we can join together and worship the Lord without the constant concern about the attacks of the enemy. And the reason why is because our high priest will raise up shepherds to protect us so that we can simply continue to serve our Savior here in the church age. Let's pray. Lord Jesus.